Hello, and welcome back to the Global and the Grand State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this important discussion on a just transition to a clean energy system. As always, I am Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for this podcast. Here at the Council, we believe that small steps, such as listening to this podcast, can help build the momentum needed to create change in the world. Welcome to those first-time listeners out there, and welcome back to everyone who has been listening to all of our episodes over the years. We do this for you and would love your feedback on future issues and topics you would like to explore further. Really quickly, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a nonpartisan community supported nonprofit that dedicates its work to building global understanding and connections. We need your support to help continue these programs, and I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who supports our work through membership, donations, and sponsorships. A particular thank you to McLean Middleton, our ongoing sponsor of this program. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Now, on with the show. the climate is changing, even if there is disagreement about its causes. There is growing agreement that a transition away from fossil fuel intensive energy sectors is necessary and that a net zero carbon emission system will not only benefit the health of the environment, but also of billions of people affected by pollution every year. There is a wide array of suggestions for how the world achieves this goal, as well as several global attempts to lock in commitments from governments across the world. All this to say, there is a lot of work to complete before the world reaches its goals, or even begins to see significant reductions in carbon emissions. To not be all doom and gloom, I want to point out one benefit to the fact that the world remains in the early stages of this transition, and that is, there is still time to shape the new energy structures that will consider a just transition to green energy environments. However, before we start giving you all the answers, let's outline some terms first. First, I mean, should we talk about what energy transition means? Because that's what we get a lot of questions about. What does that even mean? That is Dr. Aaron Baker, Distinguished Professor of Industrial Engineering and Operations Research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And the faculty director of the Energy Transition Institute, which is focused on stakeholder-engaged research at the intersection of energy technology and social equity. Her research has taken her to countries around the world, mainly across Africa, to study inequities in energy systems and consider solutions for how to encourage a more just future system, both at home 
and abroad. We're talking about an energy transition, a transition to a low carbon energy system. These days, most people are talking about a transition to a net zero carbon system. And that's a massive transformation. The entire energy system is going to have to change to get there. Okay. So what is net zero emissions? Net zero means that we still might have some activities which are releasing carbon dioxide and probably other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But we will have other technologies which can essentially suck those up and get them out of the atmosphere. And so we end up with net zero. And so one example are biomass technologies where you you grow a tree, it sucks up the CO2, you burn that tree to generate electricity, the CO2 goes back into the atmosphere, and then you grow another tree and that sucks it back up. And so it's net zero. We also have direct air capture is another technology that gets us to this net zero idea. So we can have a few activities that still generate CO2, but mostly we should be reducing almost all of our CO2 and greenhouse gas emitting activities. So transitioning towards a net zero system is the goal, but there is another part of all of this, and that is thinking about justice throughout this transition. Currently, the research shows that low-income communities and communities of color, regardless of economic empowerment, are disproportionately affected by pollution created throughout the energy system, from extraction of resources to the burning of fossil fuels. In addition, as the world transitions away from traditional sources of energy, communities will see job losses in these industries, from coal miners in West Virginia to engineers maintaining local fossil fuel-driven power plants. So, before we start looking at what a just transition would look like, we need to understand some of the current inequities in the system. A lot of my work has actually been focused in the U.S., and even in the U.S., the energy system has a lot of inequity built into it. One example is pollution. You know, heavily polluting plants are definitely in low-income areas, and there's evidence that they're in places where racial and ethnic minorities live, and that they've been explicitly cited in those places. So that's an injustice that we see, or an inequity that we see in the transition is around solar and solar subsidies. So in the state of Massachusetts, for example, they have subsidies for rooftop solar, and those go to people who own homes. They tend to be upper middle-class people who live in the suburbs or out in the country. They don't have a lot of tall buildings on top of them. They own their houses. And so they tend to be pretty well off, but everybody pays for that subsidy. And so it's taking money from the poor and giving it to the rich. So these are the kind of inequities in the U.S. So energy transition is definitely also a potential for helping to improve places around the world. I've done a lot in sub-Saharan Africa. There's about half a billion people that still don't have electricity access in sub-Saharan Africa. And so energy transition may provide an opportunity to help speed that access to electricity while at the same time reducing our carbon emissions. Okay, so now on to the justice part of the discussion. What do we mean when we talk about a just transition? It can mean actually a number of different things. Some people focus only on the impacts of the transition themselves and making sure that people aren't hurt by the transition. So that's like a focus on coal miners and that kind of thing. I'm really interested in a much broader way of thinking about that. And that's the energy system is so important in our lives and our economy that this transition to a net zero energy system 
gives us an amazing opportunity to make the entire energy system more just than it is right now. I believe we can actually end up in a much better world once we go through the energy transition, but we have to do it very, very intentionally. Some of the intentionality revolves around where energy production is situated, how it is transmitted, and how do governments, utilities, and communities ensure that people have reliable access to energy to power the modern world. These are heavy issues to think about, especially as urgent action is necessary to start addressing the challenges of climate change. As we continue to think about how to reduce or even reverse some of these inequalities, one area that should receive particular focus is the parts of the world that already do not have reliable access to energy. Dr. Baker just returned from a trip to South Africa, so she has particularly interesting insights into the energy system there. South Africa is facing a major energy crisis right now. They have not maintained their energy generation plants for many, many years, starting from when apartheid was still on and because of so many of the difficulties that are still remaining because of apartheid. They haven't maintained their energy generation. About half of their fleet is not working right now. Half of their coal-powered plants don't work. And so they experience what they call load shedding, which are blackouts every day, two to four hours a day, one to two times a day, every single day in every part of the country. So that's one thing that they have right now that's pretty intense. At the same time, they still have some electricity access problem. It's not the same as in some other sub-Saharan African countries, but they have these areas called the townships where many of the black and they're called colored populations live. The townships have some electricity access, but there's quite a bit of informal development in those townships where people are just building themselves what they call shacks. So they build shacks. Those shacks aren't necessarily um, attached to electricity system. Um, and then electricity is still somewhat expensive for people who are living on very, very low income. And so South Africa is very heavily coal driven right now. They have quite a bit of coal mining in South Africa. And so you know, it made sense. They built a bunch of coal generation plants on top of their coal mines. And that's how they've generated a lot of their electricity. One thing that's interesting, I don't know if it's jumping ahead, but one thing that's interesting is that the least cost way forward for South Africa, the least cost way for them to have a working electricity system that's reliable and that provides electricity for everyone is to stop with the coal, not fix and certainly not build any new coal plants and instead focus on solar. Some countries around the world, especially in the global south, are feeling a particular crunch in regards to the climate crisis in a way that countries like the United States have not worried about in the past. As the most economically developed countries have relied heavily on fossil fuels to power their growth, they are now the ones telling the whole world to cut their use of fossil fuels. However, countries like South Africa still have huge populations that are underserved by current energy systems or not served at all and need more power to connect these communities to the grids. So. While these countries understand the impact of climate change and see it affecting their own communities more and more, there's a difficulty in balancing the need for cheap energy with the need to stem emissions. Therefore, some countries are looking to a transition to natural gas as a stepping stone to a less carbon-intensive system. However, there is the question 
of locking in long-term investment into fossil fuels when action is needed now. Each country will have to make decisions for themselves, but it seems with global leadership, many countries could skip the natural gas step and jump right to the clean technologies of today. So what I found in Ghana and another a student of mine is right now in Nigeria, that many people there on the ground, climate change is not high on their list of priorities because these are people who are just trying to get by. I mean, they often sometimes aren't quite sure how they're going to eat today or electricity and what's happening with their children. So these are people that are really facing problems. And so climate change for them is not what's top on their list. And we found that in Ghana as well. People wanted affordability. They wanted access. They wanted reliability. But what's cool, though, is there's a real potential for the global north, Europe and the U.S., and people who have the privilege to worry about climate change and have the money to do something can address climate change while solving the problems that people have in Ghana, in Nigeria, right? So by putting in sensible and sustainable utility side scale solar or maybe solar microgrids or solar home systems, you can help to provide energy development in places like Ghana and Nigeria, which people there want while at the same time you are addressing climate change as well. There is definitely, I think, a room for people in the global north to make investments in Africa, which push forward climate change and also push forward the things that people on the ground care about. As we look toward implementing a just energy transition, it is important to keep the key goals in mind, as this can help map out the steps the world needs to take in order to reach the ideal systems that will benefit everyone. We would like to see access for the many people around the world that don't have electricity. We would like to see them to have electricity. I think affordability is important to everyone, even in the developed and the undeveloped world. And so we would love to have electricity that was affordable and allowed people to first be comfortable, be cool, be warm, and then second, use it for productive uses. And then third, we'd like it to be equitable. And so we would like people to be able to generate wealth from the energy system. We would like to minimize pollution as much as possible, but if there is pollution, not to pour it into the areas where there's poor and marginalized people living. So yeah, I'd say access and then affordability and and reliable. We'd like to have high reliability as well. Accessibility is a pretty easy one to understand and envision, as it simply means everyone has safe, reliable, and affordable access to the electricity they need to power their lives. This is, of course, much easier said than done, as there are a myriad of challenges to connecting everyone to the grid. Also, we have already covered some of the ideas around equity, such as ensuring that we do not create new systems that advantage the wealthy while disadvantaging the lower socioeconomic groups. This can be achieved through programs that support low-income communities to produce and store their own clean energy, ensure the positioning of power resources does not disproportionately affect marginalized communities, and help create productive uses of that energy so that these communities can benefit economically from the energy they are producing. As communities gain access to reliable and affordable energy, they can start to utilize that for the production of goods and services, access to higher quality education, and reduce crime, all of which will help create the conditions necessary for economic growth. This all takes time, but is important work to fund, and the green energy transition can help bring this reliability. However, some of the detractors of the current technologies, such as wind and solar, focus on the intermittent nature of these power sources. 
there are some technological challenges. Probably the biggest one is this whole idea of the intermittent technology so that, you know, solar works when the sun is shining and wind works when the wind is blowing. If we want to build a system that has a lot of wind and solar, we have to have ways to store energy or to have what's called demand response, have people use energy when it's available. And so that's a challenge that we haven't quite figured out. People are still working on a number of different storage technologies. It's the reason people are getting excited about hydrogen again. I don't know if you know the hydrogen. <laughs> about 20, 25 years ago, hydrogen was what everybody talked about, went completely away. And now everyone's very excited about hydrogen again. But now in a more realistic way, I think not as a hydrogen economy, but as a niche technology, which will help in terms of this. However, there are a lot of really interesting technologies emerging around storage of electricity that can help with this. One of the coolest that I came across in the research I did for this episode was the idea of gravity storage, which traditionally has pumped water to a higher storage tank and dropped it when the energy is needed. However, the company EnergyVolt has been working to improve on that idea using automated robotic arms to lift large cement blocks and dropping them when the energy is needed, changing the potential energy into kinetic. This frees up needed water resources and allows energy storage to begin anywhere. Dr. Baker has heard of a few other unique ideas that researchers at UMass Amherst are working on. One is related to hydrogen, actually, and I think we're calling it wind ship. And it's what are called unmoored floating wind turbines. So we have wind turbines. We're already interested in floating wind turbines, but they typically would be moored to the ground. And then you would have you know, a wire plugged into them and you would transmit electricity back to the land to where we are. But these are unmoored. So they're really like ships. So it's like a floating wind turbine that just sails around. What it does is it generates electricity, uses that electricity to make hydrogen, and then you know, has the hydrogen in the hull of its boat. And then whenever it gets full, it just comes back and releases that hydrogen. So it's a very interesting way of generating hydrogen and not having to worry so much about the intermittency of wind power. So that's one interesting one. Another one, speaking of storage, that I thought was interesting is, again, storage to go with offshore wind energy. It's called compressed air energy storage. So compressed air energy storage is where when you have extra electricity, you generate electricity and you, you blow up, in this case, a balloon, essentially. So you blow up a balloon. And then when you need the electricity, you let the air slurch out of the balloon and spin a generator and generate electricity. If you do this with offshore wind, you put them down at the bottom of the ocean where there's a lot of pressure. That makes it way more efficient than it would be otherwise because you have all this pressure that really helps to generate the electricity. So those are a couple of interesting ideas. Of course, all this comes with trade-offs. And what will work in one part of the world will not necessarily work elsewhere. New materials will be needed. Unintended environmental impacts will need studying. The new solutions for different types of pollution will have to be invented. We have all heard about the race to secure the new minerals needed for the green economy, and, again, the extraction of many of these rare earth minerals are coming at a cost to local communities. Generally, these communities are the most marginalized, and it continues the challenges they have been facing for generations. In addition, old technologies will need to be reconsidered and the trade-offs balanced. Here, I'm talking about nuclear. Obviously, nuclear is very controversial. It is, however, in very low carbon. So it's certainly, I guess for me, I don't really come down 
very strongly one way or the other, except that I do feel we need to keep nuclear on the table. We need to have knowledge about it. It has real potential. You know, I believe that when Germany decided to pull back their nuclear power plants, their carbon emissions increase. And so I think we need to keep it in mind. That's kind of where I am with that. And then a lot of people are excited about, but I don't know where it's gone, something called small modular nuclear power, small modular nuclear reactors. These are small and they can be quite self-contained. And so relatively easy to export to a number of places around the world. And so people are interested in them. I believe the costs have not come down in the way that people were hoping that they would. But I think keeping nuclear on the table is important. It's uh, climate change is a very imminent problem. (laughs) And people are worried about things around nuclear, but a lot of things they're worried about are very, very far in the future. And I think it makes some sense to take care of our more imminent problems first, and then you can kind of worry about the future. With nuclear, my biggest concern with nuclear has always been proliferation. I think that's the biggest actual danger from nuclear is that depending on who is building it where and what the security is like, the use of some of these materials for nuclear bombs, that's definitely a concern. But it is a very, very clean, you know, in many ways, a very clean, certainly pollution-wise, carbon-wise technology. And so I think it's a good idea to try to keep it on the table at least. Nuclear is one of the really hot-button issues in this debate, as the trade-offs are between reactor meltdowns, the threat to the Zaporizhia nuclear facility in Ukraine, the idea of proliferation as compared to zero-carbon energy solutions that does not have the issues of other technologies when it comes to their intermittent nature. Nuclear in the U.S. alone produces enough energy to avoid over 400 71 million metric tons of carbon emissions each year. Not an easy thing to balance against. So what are some of the other ways we can help move towards net zero? Demand reduction is also key, as the average American has a carbon footprint of 16 tons per year. To be clear, that puts us at number 15 on a per capita basis, but number two overall. The average person's carbon footprint around the world is only four tons per year. So that means we all have work to do to bring down our consumption. There are easy ways to do this, weatherizing your home, turning off the lights when you leave the room, turning down your water heater a few degrees. And there are more difficult ways to do this, avoiding air travel, eating less meat, reconsidering your overall consumption habits. Dr. Baker has some additional ideas. I'm excited about it in the U.S. I think that demand response or demand side management actually has potential if we design it right for getting money into the hands of low-income and marginal people. Because demand side management has amazing potential for value to it. So some very simple things. If people just wouldn't turn their air conditioner to quite, you know, as cold in the summer on the hottest day. You can save a lot of energy, and most people hardly even tell the difference in what their air conditioner is doing. If you save all that demand, you could build fewer power plants. So those are fewer billion-dollar power plants. They just don't even need to be built. And so that's a big savings if you can have the program so that you can get some of that money into the hands of people that are low-income and low-wealth. could be a, a nice way to help the grid be more stable and also build wealth in communities that can use it. As the saying goes, the greenest type of energy is the energy you don't need to produce. So if you are looking for the smallest, easiest thing you can do to help begin creating a just transition, 
Start here with reducing your energy use. There are other ways to get involved, and a lot of people are thinking about this work. But I'm not sure it has reached the general consciousness of the everyday person, which is why I set out to hold this conversation in the first place. That is not to say nothing is being done at this point. Well, I mean, actually, a lot of people are thinking about it in the U.S., for instance. A lot of people are thinking about it. The DOE has their Justice 40 initiative, but it's implementing it. So there are, there's definitely people on the ground, the environmental justice community. So these are communities that tend to be marginalized. So often people of color, usually low income. And usually what makes them an environmental justice community means they've had some kind of environmental inequity. Usually it has to do with pollution. They're facing polluting power plants or air pollution, that kind of thing. And so those communities are definitely active and trying to advocate for for a more just energy transition. And I think a number of people are very interested in state government at the national level. People are interested. It's just that, I guess, like a big coordination game or something. It's hard to figure out exactly what to do. It's hard enough to get climate policy moving forward and then to be really careful that your climate policy is not going to have unintended consequences or that it's, it's just biased in a way that it's going to not benefit people. Or, or Speaking of climate policy, we know there are heated debates on the national level between leaders of both parties as to what can and should be done to address this challenge. Neither side is budging, and compromise on much of anything is quite difficult today. However, it seems that if we could get politics and vested interests out of the way, a solution is there to be had. The major challenge with addressing climate change is not really in my area of expertise. It's the political challenge, right? And that's, to me, is the major challenge. People would just get on board and say, this is what we need to do, and start moving that direction. And I think we could get there. We certainly could get to net zero. Being equitable would require an extra level of intention. So, I mean, the biggest challenge everywhere is just that there's not a focus on it. But let's say we're moving forward with a net zero world. What's then the challenge of making it equitable? Well, again, it's kind of just the same thing that we have so much systemic bias that it's hard to unbake that. And so we just have to be very intentional. So there's nothing fundamental. There's no reason why we can't get to net zero and there's no reason why it can't be equitable in terms of there's nothing fundamental in the technology or anything like this. It's, it's purely all to do with politics, which is not my area of expertise. All right. So if the politics of the day are not going to get us to move forward on this issue, what can the average everyday person do to help move the world to a more just energy system? Understanding that this is a huge global issue. Well, I think especially for the equity aspect, I think it's important for people to educate themselves and just get a deeper understanding of bias and structural and systemic racism and inequities. Because the more you understand that, the easier it is to support programs that will push us in a more equitable manner. And I think in general, climate change and equitable climate change, there's so many aspects of it that I think almost anyone can find a use for their talents to help support this. And so whether that's you're a writer or an artist, I mean, there's a lot of work needed in that area. Any kind of a scientist, a mathematician, a social scientist, and then of course, entrepreneurs and business people. I mean, I think just kind of keeping your eyes peeled as to what the options are and making small differences in in your company. So I think everybody can participate in some way. Um, When you're talking about equity, though, I think the first step is trying to get some understanding of how deep the inequities are right now, and just doing whatever your small piece is, you know, voting, voting locally, 
here's one thing that I will say that's really important and that we see as a problem in New England is so many communities don't want to allow housing to be built in their communities. And they especially don't like dense housing, which is often people that have lower incomes live in. And they use a lot of excuses for being against this. And sometimes they'll use environmental arguments and those environmental arguments are completely wrong. So we need high density housing and high density communities are so much better for the environment than things were spread out and everybody lives in their own few acres. And so what people could really do in New England and places like that is to really contact their local, very local government and tell them to please streamline things so that we can build more housing, high density housing right in the middle of our towns. That's something that's hard to do right now. And it's equitable. It provides housing for people and it's good for the environment. They don't have to drive an hour and a half to get to their jobs, which are nearby. I want to leave you with this idea. Do not let the fact that you cannot do everything to solve this global issue prevent you from doing the something that you can to move the needle forward. We all have a role to play in this big, beautiful world. And to all the naysayers out there, collective movement led by individual actions can provide the momentum necessary to change the world. So please share this podcast with your friends. Begin community conversations about what you can do to make small, local changes. And advocate for the policies you would like to see on the local, state, federal, and international levels. The only way to ensure your voice has no power is to never use it. has been The Global and the Granite State, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We thank you for listening to this episode and encourage you to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a comment, emailing us at council at org, or finding us on social media. We would love to know your thoughts and ideas for future discussions. As always, Tim Horgan is the do-it-all for this podcast and appreciates your support and interest. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Environment by Organoid. Until next month. Mm-hmm.